Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I do actually have another comment. And uh, again, thank you all for sending in the comments. Please keep them coming. Um, I think I said last time, maybe I'm getting contacts from business people trying to sell me stuff. And so uh, I don't have a whole lot of money to buy anything. But this one says, good morning, JBL. It's great to hear from you on such a wonderful topic as America's founding fathers, up close and personal, especially as America and especially these men are under attack. We need to be reminded not only that America is great, but how it got that way. Please continue in this kind direction. And again, that's uh, this is from uh, actually the state of, I think, Alabama. And so, um, or maybe it's Mississippi. We'll have to see. But anyway, it's from the South. Let's put it that way. Well, last time uh, we began our discussion of George and Martha Washington. And uh, we were specifically mentioning Valley Forge. But uh, um, we may have been just a little bit misleading in that, that the, you know, the, the war uh, over eight winters or seven or eight winters, I guess, it would move to different places. So it wasn't just Valley Forge, but I think Valley Forge, when we think of the hard bitterness of the Revolutionary War, I think everyone just automatically thinks of of Valley Forge. So um, we didn't get quite finished with what we wanted to last time. And uh, so today what I want to do is I want to continue our discussion of George and Martha in uh, the unique way they dealt with the rigors of the Revolutionary War. But then I want to shift our discussion to the two of them being the first president and the first lady. And so, again, I have the 60-plus panel here with me today. Of course, that means my sweet wife and compatriot in literature is back with me in the studio. So welcome back, Deborah. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I have to apologize for taking up so much time last program, but we had to establish some of those things that um, George Washington had this incredible vision for this country. So let's just kind of wind up our discussion about the, the president and the first lady during the Revolutionary War. Was there anything else that uh, that you'd like to bring out about the two of them? I mean, I don't think I don't think we should allow people to think that well, when Martha showed up, everything was just Ducky. No, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, she, she had to really um, go through a lot of um, uh, difficulties. Um, it does say that every, she, I mentioned last time that every fall was a waiting game. Would the British pull out so that he could make at least a flying visit home? She was always, the idea for them was always to get him home. That was like their their goal always. They loved Mount Vernon and, and the home life. And and so she she would go home and take care of things and hope maybe the war would be over. But then every fall, the answer was the same, no. So then Martha then climbed into the carriage, journeying for many weary days to join George in whatever hellhole served as winter camp that year. So it was that just 
not only being at the camp, but also getting there was was very difficult. She had yes. to go through a lot of of hardship getting there. It was it was traveling was very difficult then. But every each year she she recreated a home for her husband that helped him endure the delay, anxiety, and homesickness. So so the war part it seems like after reading this, some of the hard things about the war were were just the the uh, fact they didn't have supplies and there was a lot of delay. A lot of waiting, and and it, it's it. George Washington had to be really um, had to be really strong <clears throat> to keep keep going through everything, and she really helped him through that through all that that yeah. time. I I think mm-hmm. one thing we uh, listeners, I want to remind you mm-hmm. that my wife is actually reading from Patricia Brady's book Martha Washington and American Life, and so so we're not reading necessarily Paul Johnson at this point. But but the point is, uh, I, I think so many people just don't have a clue as to what people really did have to go through in, during the Revolutionary War. And, and uh, it, it is, war at that time was much different than it is today. And there were these delays and this waiting. And so, so here the American Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War, took eight and a half years and in many ways, uh, like I said, when there were battles, uh, George Washington lost battles, but it was more like of a waiting game to who would see who would die out first. And there, Patricia Brady brings that out, that, that Martha and George and probably a lot of Americans were just hoping the British would go away. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they didn't always go away. You know, they'd come back. And so so it just shows, even, uh, even Johnson brings out that, that really... England didn't have a lot of care, let's say, for the colonies and the people of the colonies. They cared about the wealth they could get from it. But very few people, even in Parliament, they wanted to control the Americas. But very few of them actually knew what American colonies were all about. And here there was this beautiful new nation coming to birth. And, uh, you know, all they wanted to do was, you know, get the taxation and, and control what was happening and yet this whole new way of thinking, this whole new American mind was developing. And it was so, even though it was founded in Britain, it was so different. And, and uh, I think even if you look at the, the American presidency, and again, George Washington was the first president and, and Martha was the first lady, they really set an example. And it's a different, if it's, a, it's a different way of managing government than any other country in this world. And, uh, you know, George and Martha set the pace for that. And a lot of the American presidents and their wives has followed suit with it. So, so, but anyway, I do think it's interesting that Martha was so dedicated to even herself suffering privation in order to help her husband. So that's really amazing. Yes, yes, it is. She, she really did, did suffer. And, um, but she, she, she was so uh, her husband was so important to her but but the cause was important to her she she could discuss the different aspects of what was going on in the war she because she'd been she was around the men there um the soldiers and and the the um officers so she could discuss the issues as well so she she was really dedicated to her husband she was also dedicated to to the the war effort and the revolutionary war and, and the and, cause and the, and the cause right yeah you know, there's so many <laughs> feminists out there that they talk about men like george washington and, and the other as privileged white men mm-hmm. 
that do not want to hear from women. That was never true. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he, he really listened to Martha. Right. He really did, yes. And so, and she she obviously, I mean, uh, um, uh, that's a sign of a good wife sometimes, that the wife that is willing to stand up to her husband and challenge some thinking. You know, so I, I bet they had some pretty, some pretty, uh, maybe uh, active discussions around the campfire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, um, what was it like then? Um, let's say when when uh, when Martha would have left the camp, what would have been like for her then, or what would have been like? What would life have been like for George when she was gone? You know, so yes, I'm sure it was it was hard. He he he. They wrote a lot of letters, and so he really he um, you know did not want her to leave, but he also wanted her to to go home and take care of Mount Vernon as well so but he he missed her and but he was also really concerned about her well-being as well so he would always they they really lived by their letters and knowing you know making sure each other was each the other person was was all right and to know what was going on in their lives right right so but so i do have something i can read here about the, about the end of it you know if, okay yeah. sure so, absolutely but this is what Pat- patricia brady she kind of sums it up about um George Washington and the war effort. It just says that George Washington, this is on page 144 and 145, it says, George Washington was the indispensable man to the success of the American Revolution, and Martha Washington was the indispensable woman to him. He could bear all all those years away from home, creating a national army, because she spent part of every year with him, no matter how awful the conditions in camp might be. Their mutual love, confidence, and support help keep him going in the face of every disappointment, setback, and defeat. Every year she made a home for him where he could rest and refresh his spirits until it was time to go back into the field another time for however long it took to win the war. Out of those eight and a half years that he spent in command of the army, she was with him for nearly five, more than half the war. In stays ranging from three to ten months, Martha was truly the secret weapon of the American Revolution. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, that that's something that, that I I had not known until we we read it here. So so I, I think that that uh, leads us into this next segment of how how it was for them after the war. <laughs> you know, when they finally finally got into uh, let's say more more stable conditions. I mean, can, can you? I guess when I think about it, if you, can you imagine her taking care of all the property? While he's gone, I mean, this is and remember, they did have, you know, they did have slaves, and they did have servants. And by the way, I, I did need to make a clarification. Uh, in one of the last two programs, I said that John Adams, you know, had slaves, and uh, someone called me on that, which I'm really glad they did. But but the point is, he did not have African slaves, but he did have. Uh, Caucasian servants in the uh, in the house, so so um, it, it it was uh, uh, it was just a critical error for me to say that he had slaves, but he did have servants, and so so remember a lot of these men were British gentry and British aristocracy, where they were used to having house servants, you know. So so, uh, but anyway, uh, I do I do correct it. John Adams did not have slaves, so. Um, but anyway, I, I I think the point is that uh, 
she was really, she was a very capable woman to be able to take care of the acreage. I mean, they had thousands of acres of land and uh, also to take care of Mount Vernon and keep it running and keep the farming going. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that the Washingtons actually went broke during the war. (laughs) You know, I still think they had their their value and they, their wealth was still increasing during the war. They ha- they had um, I read somewhere where they had they were um, land land wealthy, but they might have had some you know um, what's the word they may not have always had the funds. <laughs> so they right. you know, but they they definitely had land. But their assets <laughs> were the assets, there. right? Yeah, yes. that's where that's mm-hmm. yeah, right. I feel like we could mm-hmm. we could probably use a few more assets <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit more money too sometimes. <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. just a matter of not managing it properly. <laughs> So uh, let me just uh, let's just bridge over or walk over the bridge onto this whole idea of of uh, him becoming the first president and and him become and her becoming the first lady and and I think with this program let's f- focus on uh, her as first lady and I I just wanted to knowing that you wanted to talk about these things I went and I got a little bit off of. The uh, Britannic Online, and I got something off uh, History Online, and uh, uh, just to talk about the the role of the first lady. And I just want to say it's unique. It's unique in this world, and it's unique in our Western society to have a first lady like America has. And I think I think you'll see that the uh, Britannic Online would agree with me, and then also uh, History Online would agree with what I'm saying here. So this is this is a, just a quote from Botanic Online. It says uh, uh, the title of it is First Lady, and it goes on. And the, the, this is how it reads: It says, First Lady, wife of the President of the United States. Although the First Lady's role has never been codified or officially defined, she figures prominently in the political and social life of the nation. Representative of her husband on official and ceremonial occasions, both at home and abroad. The First Lady is closely watched for some hint of her husband's thinking and for a clue to his future actions. And so, so the, thing, the, the point I want to read about that is, or the point I want to make while reading this is, I believe George and Martha started this example, you know, where, where she, she really did entertain a lot of people for George, and especially when they moved to New York and they moved into the, to the official residence I think George Washington is the one of the first, um, you know, governmental leaders that had his home and his office in the same location at the same building. And uh, uh, now I think when they got to Mount Vernon, that was different. Um, I, I'm not uh, quite sure about that. I'm just kind of talking off my uh, off my head here, which maybe not is the best thing, <laughs> but we'll find that out. <laughs> That's how I got into the John Adams have slaves problem. So, <laughs> so I have to learn not to do that. Now, uh, this uh, Britannic Online goes on to say, although unpaid and unelected, her prominence provides her a platform from which to influence behavior and opinion, and popular first ladies have served as models for how American women should dress, speak, and cut their hair. Some first ladies have used their influence to affect legislation on important matters such as temperance reform, housing improvement, and women's rights. Although the wife of the President of the United States played a public role from the founding of the Republic, 
The title First Lady did not come into general use until much later, near the end of the 19th century. But by the end of the 20th century, the title had been absorbed into other languages and was often used without translation for the wife of the nation's leader. Even in countries where the leader's consort received far less attention and exerted much less influence than in the United States, so, so uh, I, I really think that 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 is amazing. Now, they go on to say here. <clears throat> it says because the framers of the Constitution left the chief executive considerable latitude in choosing advisors. He was able to seek counsel from a wide variety of friends and family, including his wife. The first president made decisions that highlighted the consort's role. When Martha Washington, first lady from 1789 to 1797, joined President George Washington in New York City a month after his April 1789 inauguration, she arrived on a conspicuous barge and was greeted as a public hero. The president had already arranged to combine his office and residence in one building, thus providing her with ample opportunity to receive his callers and participate in official functions. Although she was refrained from taking a stand on important issues, she was carefully watched and widely hailed as Lady Washington. So so I, th- I thought that was a really good compliment to her and ties in with what, what we're reading from Patricia Brady. Now, it's interesting. Listen to this. We'll talk about Abigail Adams and John Adams for a minute, and and uh, maybe I can uh, redeem myself from making such a horrible mistake as saying they had slaves, but they did have servants now, so remember that. So Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, enlarged what had been primarily a social role. She took an active part in the debate over the development of political parties, and she sometimes pointed out to her husband people she considered his enemies. Although she did not disdain the household management role that her predecessor had played, uh, she oversaw the initial move to the new White House in Washington, D.C. in November 1800. Critics focused on the political counsel she gave her husband, and some referred to her sarcastically as Mrs. President. <laughs> so, so you can see that Martha, Martha got something going there uh, with being the first lady. And, and uh, I have a feeling that if we really uh, could go back in time and, and uh, get in, inside the, the Washington home, I bet she was also Mrs. President sometimes. <laughs> All right. Now, I just want to add to this just a little bit about Barbara Bush. Uh, since we... Uh, uh, over a week ago, uh, they had the pre- uh, funeral for President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. But uh, uh, here's what they say on uh, the history website about Barbara as being a first lady. Uh, and I think this is a really great compliment to her. Barbara Bush managed to hit an almost perfect note for her time. Although both George and Barbara Bush were to the manor born and summered at the family compound in Tony Kennebunkport, Maine, the first lady won over the hearts of the average Americans with her authenticity, frankness, grandmotherly persona, and her embrace of family literacy. The epitome of a World War II generation matron, she had married handsome Navy aviator George H.W. Bush at age 19, never pursued a professional career outside the home, 
and devotedly kept the home fires burning while her husband climbed the ladders of success in business and politics. She will likely be the last presidential spouse not to have her own professional life before arriving at the White House. So, so again, she just reminds me of what, from what we're reading about Martha Washington. She just seems to remind me so much of probably what Martha was like because she was a Martha was a homemaker. Oh yes, definitely. And uh, you know, she loved family and children. And uh, you know, the, the the Washingtons didn't have any children of their own, but they took in a lot of children over the years and helped raise them. So, so there was a lot about that. Okay. So so let's now talk about um, what Brady has to say about her role as the First Lady. Yes, well, she um, she does mention a little bit about, you have to realize that, first of all, George Washington did not really want to be president, but right. he felt the duty. And she definitely did not want him to be president after all they'd been through with the war. She, you know, so, so um, it's... It, uh, the book, you know, Brady says, Alas for Martha, who had dreamed that they would grow old in solitude and tranquility together. This is when, when it, you know, it started. So she did not go with him. As you mentioned before, she wasn't there at the beginning. And, right. I mean, he actually, you know, had to, he asked her several times, you know, wrote to her a few times and was waiting for her to come to New York. And when she finally came, then, of course, they had the, the big... Um, uh, welcoming uh, uh, for her, but <clears throat> but it was not. She knew she was doing it out of duty, so she she knew she had to. But she did it. She did a great job, and um, there there was just a lot of new things going. They had to figure out because um, this was a, a brand new position, and so they did a lot of of. Um, Enter, not, I shouldn't say entertaining, but accepting visitors. People from just every walk of life, life would come to visit. And so they had to organize times when they could come and see the president. And then it turned out they worked out times when she actually um, uh, had people come and would have receptions for people. So she did a lot. She ended up doing a lot of that to, to ease his uh, time. And um, let's see, I have a, something where. I've written down here <clears throat> where um, Patricia Bray says something like, um, oh, the boundaries set for the president's lady by her husband and his male advisors were not at all to her liking. <laughs> Being the nation's hostess has been an onerous task for most for, for many first ladies. As the first president's wife, however, Martha had no way of knowing how radically her life would be curtailed. President Washington had already announced in the newspapers that he and his wife would not attend or host private gatherings. So, so she was because they they were they said that she shouldn't have any favoritism, so she was not allowed to have have special private gatherings. It all, all had to be formal and public, and everyone had to be invited. And so that was different for her. Um, it says her role as a commander's wife during the Revolution had been a walk in the park compared to that of first lady, <laughs> but she did well. So it's just it was just saying that it was difficult for her, but she um, she did well because she was very adept at host being a hostess. She knew how to make people be uh, feel at home and be comfortable. She was considered very um, she was she didn't put on airs. You know, she was very kind of. Um, just comfortable with people and it made people feel comfortable. 
So she knew how to do that. So so she she rose to the occasion, but it was it it wasn't easy for her. But she rose to the occasion, and um, but it says no one who attended Martha's receptions or the presidential dinners could have detected her dissatisfaction. Although Washington was sometimes criticized for stiff ceremoniousness, his lady was always praised for her easy friendliness. The president was a man of natural dignity and aloofness, never one for backslapping camaraderie. As his national stature increased, so did his reserve. Both from inclination and policy, he had created a commanding public presence. But his wife's first thought was for her guests. In putting them at their ease, she softened and humanized their overpowering husband, allowing him to relax a bit and show something of the private family man. So so she, she really um, helped him that way and kind of um, complimented him. Yeah, that, and they worked I, together. I think, that's, I think that's really kind of fascinating because... I mean, to me, if I guess if you, when you read the first part of Brady, even even Chernow talks about Martha, some that, that it seemed like she was a lively girl, you know, mm-hmm. and she she probably did love to have the company of the people that she was closest to, so so I can see that would be a real radical change to, well, to maybe have to entertain maybe some of his enemies, right? Yes, you know that, <laughs> yes. that uh, you know when uh, you know in fact I was looking. <laughs> Uh, looking at some of the funeral, you know, uh, President Bush, and uh, there's there was Donald Trump and then the Obama sitting right next to each other, and I'm thinking, how can they do that when they when President Obama just blatantly attacks him all the time? But they're sitting there, uh, they were sitting there just you know observing and being polite, and so so that that takes a lot of reserve, you know, to be able to do that. So, but but in some ways, she made him look more human, I guess. Yes, so, right. Yeah. So, so what was her relationship with Abigail Adams? Oh, that that was interesting. They they became friends. They did, and they both were very different kinds of people. And um, let's see what page is that on page one sixty six. Um, yes, that was interesting. It said that um, that. Um, one of the callers became an unexpected new friend, giving the differences in their personal styles. The tartly outspoken New Englander, Ab- Abigail Adams, she was definitely outspoken. And um, th- she was different, very different from Martha. But um, they they became good friends. And um, she came, one time she came to visit. This is when Washington was actually, George Washington was actually um, recovering from one of his illnesses. And um, she came up to visit, and she, it says that she found him, she, she approved of Washington himself. She said she found him both dignified and affable, a singular example of modesty and diffidence. Her positive impression of Martha was only increased by this call. Mrs. Washington is one of those unassuming characters which create love and esteem. A most becoming pleasantness sits upon her countenance and an unaffected deportment which renders her the object of veneration and respect. And so both the Washingtons struck her, Abigail Adams, as just the right, just right for a Republican government. With all all these feelings and sensations, I found myself much more deeply impressed than I ever did before their 
before their majesties of Britain. So she had been to, to England and, right. you know, seen, so, so this is Abigail Adams. So, so she approved of Martha. <laughs> so, and, and they became good friends. They did, even though they were very different, but they were, you know, she, she was the vice president's, you know, wife. So right. it'd be natural. They would do things together. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like Martha was the, the Virginian farm girl. Right. She was Southern. But, yes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Abigail Adams was the, I mean, can you imagine the New Englander? I bet she was so opinionated. New Englander, yes. <laughs> oh, man, really opinionated. Well, that's all we have for today's program. Well, next time what we'll do is we'll complete our discussion of George Washington and Martha together, and then uh, we'll get ready to end this series, uh, probably have maybe a couple more programs. But remember, our third and final book in this series is Hero, the Life and Legend of Lawrence Arabia. Remember, you can buy this book at Amazon.com. You can also find a good used copy at abebooks.com. I buy a lot of my books from ABE Books. They're really great copies, and uh, you know uh, you can depend on them to make sure that they give you the best books. Now, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can also follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. And you can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And remember, you can leave me a comment at Facebook. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.